When I was 18, 19, 20, it was sort of a flip of a coin what kind of Ben Earl was going to turn up, what kind of player I was going to be on that day. And uh, yeah, I look back on it now, it was sort of a bit of a shame that it took me so long to clock it. You're listening to the England Rugby Podcast, O2 Inside Line. I'm Ben Earl. I'm Ben Earl, I play for Saracens and England. I play in the back row, open side flanker or number eight. All the positions rolled into one really, it's kind of the heartbeat of the team. You're expected to get through a load of work, whether that's an attack, uh, defence or in the set piece. There's always something you can be doing when you're in the, playing that position, whether that's defending, bringing speed in attack or, or putting pressure on kickers in the set piece, so yeah, that sort of thing. Growing up, my parents would probably say I was a bit of a sports nut, loved every sport, loved everything to do with sports, predominantly cricket, golf, rugby, football, those four really. All weekend was either watching sport, whether I was playing or not, and yeah, talking, thinking, doing sports and probably academics at times took a, took a secondary role, uh, much to my parents' dislike at times. That was where I got a lot of my joy from, where most of my mates are from. I grew up in the Surrey-Kent border, played all my sport predominantly in Kent. Obviously big open spaces, green spaces, loads of scope to do whatever you want really. We were very lucky to, to have all that space and to play whatever we wanted. You know, in the winter it was rugby and golf, in the summer it was golf and cricket. And yeah, it was, uh, it was great. I remember the first time I played it, it was, we played uh, tag rugby and it wasn't really for me. I think I was about the same size that I am now when I was about 12. And so I waited a little bit longer till it became full contact and then someone said you should give it a go and never really looked back. Kept going my other sports, but yeah, I think rugby was probably my strongest from quite an early age when, when I got going with it. I've loved it ever since. I think it just all came from my dad, really. My dad was uh, massive into sports, big West Ham fan, big cricket fan, um, loved his golf. So any time to spend with him and, and the family was great. And me and my brother, you know, just like I said, never stopped playing. When you score that try or, you know, made that match-winning moment or um, that moment that you, you, you end up talking about at the dinner table after, that always kept you coming back for more, I think. That feeling of contributing to a winning cause or at least a, a good performance in terms of our team or however old or young we were, you know, kept me coming back for more. But on the flip side, like when we lost, it was just a complete disaster. It would ruin a weekend. Uh, I knew my mum would always be pretty nervous on a Saturday morning because if we lost at school or whatever, then that would kind of ruin her Sunday with her boys. So probably hated losing more than I loved winning. It, it was always like a chance to right your wrongs, I guess, and that was, that was always magic about sport. I guess when I was about 15, 16, definitely felt like I was heading in the right direction. I was, I was playing for the Saracens Academy at the time. I'd played a bit of representative stuff, whether that was for England or southeast of England, and felt like it was definitely something I'd want to explore. And then when I got to about 17, I probably had a bit of a bump in the road where I thought, you know, I probably got a bit ahead of myself and thought that I was, you know, it was a, a certainty that that was gonna that was gonna be the case. I was gonna try and play it professionally at least. And I think uh, Saracens at one point turned around to my parents and said, look, if we were to do the contract discussions now, I don't think Ben would get one. That hit home for me quite hard, and and for that next kind of 12 months to leading up to the summer of my last year at school, it was kind of a big focus of mine. And yeah, I managed to turn it round and got myself fit and got myself playing well. I had the right attitude. 
I got lucky enough to, to be offered a contract. But I think I always had that hunger to play professional sport. When you get to 16, 17, it's a bit of a bizarre time anyway, isn't it, in your life? I probably, you know, didn't know what it was to work really hard at something, you know, naturally being quite talented. You, a lot came your way quite easily and I probably didn't really know what hard work felt like. Probably didn't know what it felt like to put in the work behind closed doors. Yeah, I think that was probably the big thing for me was that I was just relying on natural talent and not really working too arduously or, or you know, um, wasn't really buying into the whole ethos of trying to get better. And it was, you know, it was one of my first of many obstacles that I had to overcome to be where I am now, I guess. By the time I got to 16, it was more rugby and cricket were my two big focuses. I was playing for Kent at the time and I was playing for Saris as well, so I had the best of both worlds. And I think when it got to about 16 and both were demanding a bit more of my time and my energy, it wasn't possible to, to do both anyway. I probably felt it was more of an avenue to go down the rugby route. I think my parents were pretty happy with that. I didn't have to drive to Yorkshire for four days at a time and, and watch me not bowl and field. Um, so that would have been a, a relief for them. But in terms of some of the cricket guys I played with, I went to school with Zach Crawley and a, a good mate of mine. I met Zach when I was, we were at the same year at school since we were about four. So we've known each other for a very, very long time. I'd say we've had similar journeys in terms of you know, kind of our professional lives. We both went to a, a successful playing county or team and then um, took a while to break through. Um, probably had a few bumps in the road in terms of form and trying to find an identity, I guess, as a, as a player. And then even, you know, once we'd felt like we'd been successful there, his challenges that he faced on the international scene, uh, you kind of, kind of replicated mine as well. Being in and out of the team and struggling to find form at times, playing in, a, in sometimes an underachieving team. And now, you know, seeing him reap the rewards over last summer and, and beyond is amazing. He's a great, um, great mate, but also a great voice to, to compare notes with and talk about sport and form and preparation in general, because you know, there's a lot of crossover. When I first started playing professionally, I'd have moments where I'd, uh, I'd have a great 10 minute spell or a great half. And then for the next 10 minutes or the next 20 minutes, I might as well just go and sit on the bench and, and play because I wouldn't contribute. You know, I wouldn't be able to, to contribute in the way that the team would want me to. And um, it was sort of a mental block rather than a physical block. I just um, probably didn't know how to prepare for games, didn't really know how to push myself in terms of that stuff. And I, I think it was a massive source of frustration for, for quite a few people, none more so than myself. I thought a great performance was, you know, doing anything in a game, but then if I had this one moment where I could win win the team the match or if I could have this moment where everyone would be talking about this highlight moment, that was what I would class a good performance. And I guess I kind of framed things differently as I got a bit older. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to make these barnstorming runs of 100 metres, this match-winning turnover on your try line, this humongous hit on the halfway line. It's more about accumulating little moments, little moments and staying engaged in, in, in the game. When I was 18, 19, 20, it was sort of a flip of a coin what kind of Ben I was going to turn up, um, what kind of player I was going to be on that day. And uh, yeah, I look back on it now, it was sort of a bit of a shame that it took me so long to clock it. But like I said, I've, I've over the last three, four years, I've really found something that works for me in terms of preparing for games, preparing for training. And I, I find that I get a lot more of enjoyment out of, you know, kind of ticking off these goals that I want to set myself before matches and, and also enjoying the challenge of when I have not reached those goals, trying to uh, emulate a performance from a couple of weeks back or trying to better, be better from the week before, which, uh, which I'm really enjoying. 
I think there, there wasn't just one penny drop moment. I think there was a few important things that I, I got right. I became a lot more consistent in terms of what I was doing before games. And we're talking on like fine details. So I now always eat the same food a night before a match. I always have the same kind of pre-match ritual in terms of what I do before a match and the physical stuff that I need to get right to, to make sure that I'm mentally there. And then it's probably just talking to the right people. I've worked closely with a few people about looking at this consistency um, piece and also about me as a player and me as a human and how I'm balancing my emotions throughout the week because there's no point being really up for a game on a Monday afternoon when the match is on Sunday, so. Yeah, I guess the celebration thing has kind of become a, well, I think people associate that a lot more with my game and it, you know, it has been um, commissized a bit and I can definitely see the funny side of it. I mean. A not straight line out probably doesn't warrant as big a celebration as I have done in the past. And you know, I don't, I don't love it all, but I can definitely see the funny side in it. I guess the inspiration or the reason for it is two or threefold. I think I'll be the first to admit I'm not at the focal point of a scrum. I'm going to try my hardest, but if I can give them two, three percent more energy by enjoying their work and appreciating their work, then um, that can only be a good thing for our team. It helps me stay engaged in games. I think we've spoken about the inconsistencies in my games. And like I said, I explored a few avenues in trying to stay engaged in moments where the game might slow down for a bit and it might not be as fast paced as any other moment in the game. So those celebrations help me stay on task, help me stay focused on the next thing and also enjoy the present moment, not think about moments gone or moments to come. And I think thirdly, I learned that from Maro and Owen and a few others uh, at Sari's. I think it can have a massive knock-on effect for your team and, and the opposition. And I think it just helps a collective buy-in of we're doing the right thing, things are going to turn. And also, it's an unconscious thing. Like, I just enjoy competing and it's probably the relief as much as anything that, that we've had something good go away and, and all that hard work in the weeks paying off with that small moment. And can we get it again? Can we get it again? I'm George Ford, play for Sale Sharks and England. Ben Hill on the field, loads of energy, game breaker, um, making line breaks for fun, wants to get his hands on the ball, wants to influence the game. My name's Sam Underhill, I play for Bath, Rugby and England. Ben Earl, incredible player, very talented, not short of confidence, uh, loves a celebration. He's a really good guy, enjoy spending time with him off the pitch. I always thought that the player in me was going to come out at some point and I hope, hope there's still plenty more to come. There was probably moments where I didn't think I'd get another shot playing for England again. I didn't think maybe that there was a couple of years where I wasn't getting selected, having been selected at quite an early age. And I've said quite vocally that it was probably a bit early for me to, to, be, to be getting capped at 2021. It didn't take away the effect of playing for England, but I think when you have it taken away from you, you, you value it so much more. You, you value... Um, wearing the rose and representing your, your nation and, and also representing your family in, in, that, in that light. There's four of us in our family. So my mum, Belinda, my dad, David, and my brother, James. My dad was a lawyer and, you know, watching him 
grinder, nine to five, always had a lot of admiration for. And then my mum as well, who worked in fashion, worked for a few big companies and, and was, was successful in her own right. And, you know, watching her, her achieve what she wanted to achieve and some of the stresses that came with that. You know, looking back now, I can imagine she was under a fair bit of stress at times. She was, you know, she was CEO of Debenhams for a good while. She actually got ill uh, when I was about 14, 15. So she had to retire at that at that, at that role, and, and watching her tackle the illness, and uh, and you know that was that was it was concerning. I remember the feeling when my dad told us, and that you know, was pretty worrying. But she was always a pretty strong character, and yes, yeah, she, thankfully she overcame it. And uh, that was a pretty special moment when you when you know that's going to happen. I'm not really look back on that time, but thinking back on it now, that was quite a, a powerful moment for me. You know, watching us as a family group together. There's three boys and, and my mum, so I can imagine for her, she she wasn't getting too much sympathy, but she, I think she got as much as we had to we had to offer. My brother and I are very close. He he's actually in America trying to become a professional golfer. We're both pretty competitive sporting wise in our own rights. But you know, I see him when I can and and stay in touch with him. And um, whenever he comes back, play golf with him and 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 watch him develop as a golfer is, is pretty awesome, so. I'm James Earl and I'm Ben's brother. Well, growing up with Ben was like, I mean, it was very easy for both of us. There was countless hours of cricket and rugby and football in the garden. And then it kind of, as we grew up, that kind of swapped into playing golf together. I think we're all all very competitive people. And some of the most competitive days we have are when we meet up and play golf as a whole family, all four of us. That's mostly driven by our mum though. She's she's the alpha competitive one, that's for sure. He's got a very like go for it mindset, you don't know if you don't try. And also his drive, determination. I mean he's incredibly hardworking and sort of committed. And that's definitely sort of translated through to me. He's just a really, really good guy and he's interesting and funny and nice to be around. It's pretty cool watching somebody actually live out their childhood dream, especially when they're your brother. That That's kind of a double. You're more proud of the person that he's become, not really what he's achieved, but obviously what he's achieved has been pretty surreal as well. My parents have always been brilliant in the fact that they never have like said, oh, this is how we did it or this is how I did it. Because I think they realise that everyone's got their own journey and, and society and, and the world as a whole has probably changed since they faced those difficulties in such a short space of time. But I think if you know that people you love and respect have been through, you know, some things which are way harder than anything I'm going through then or have been through, then I think that's always making life a little bit simpler. For sure, my parents, certainly my mum in, in that regard is a, is a massive inspiration. I think when you've got something like that, you can always um, find hope in, in whatever situation you're in, I guess. So yeah, I guess my love for literature is probably for a number of reasons. I think firstly, my dad is a massive reader. So we used to go on family holidays and you know, obviously me and my brother are probably not at the right age to sit down on the beach and read a book, which is exactly what I do now. But when I was a bit younger, all we wanted to do was play cricket or go for a swim or whatever. So sitting down, him just reading a book, I just thought I was just like so dull, but he was just mad on it. And I guess it kind of rubbed off on me. So I really enjoyed English at school, decided to, to, to study it as well when I when I came straight out of school, balancing it with playing, um, which had its own challenges, but something again that I really, looking back on, I'm really proud of. I think reading for me is one of my few areas I can really switch off from, from playing, really switch off from thinking about rugby. I sleep a lot better when I read before bed, that kind of thing. 
yeah, my parents know that I'm a mad reader. So when we were in camp in France, we all had a, a box of something that our loved ones had, had sent to us. Mine was white chocolate, which is my favorite kind of chocolate, and, and like five books, which I managed to finish throughout the campaign. So that just shows how well my parents know me now and, and you know, maybe becoming more and more like my dad, which is pretty concerning. Room with George Ford now, and I'm, I'm starting to get him into reading as well. He keeps playing on his phone. I keep saying, you need to get a book to read, mate. So hopefully he's gonna crack open one soon. I got capped after playing, you know, maybe 30, 40 professional games, which was pretty nuts at the time. And it's your proudest moment of your career, getting your first cap away at Murrayfield. I'll never forget that day. And then, yeah, stayed in and around the England setup during the COVID years and had some amazing memories with them. I think I was a couple of games off the record of making the most um, starts from the bench without actually starting a game, um, which I think is held by Jamie George. The other month when I made my start against Wales in the, one of the warm-up games, I think he was the first to congratulate me, but the first to say how gutted he was that I wasn't going to break his record. But I guess for me, like I learned a lot then in terms of staying patient and trying to find every avenue to earn a start. And, and you know, I was, had, I was up against some amazing players, Tom Curry, Sam Underhill, Billy Vinopola, obviously a very close friend of mine. Um, it wasn't like I... I deserved to start. It was just something that I really wanted to achieve. And then I guess falling out of, of selection and, and not, not being selected for a few years, a few things go on. You kind of have to work out what your why is, why you're playing the game. If it's not playing for England, you know, what's your purpose in playing? When I got my chance to come back, I was going to attack it and try and be myself and enjoy as much as, as, much as I could out of it, be a good bloke around camp as I could be. And, and yeah, I've enjoyed it ever since. Firstly, I think social media is brilliant. I love it. I think everyone has a right to opinion. I'm probably one of the few that read it. I love reading it. I love reading the good and the bad. I think also, you know, playing for England, you open yourself up for scrutiny, you know, that, that it's the highest of the high and it's not without caveats, you know. We have to bear that in mind when, when we've got the responsibility of playing for your country. When it goes to personal stuff and it goes to stuff which is outside you as a rugby player, not just you as a, as a character, like you as an actual human being, then I think that's where it crosses the line. You know, I hope people appreciate the passion we have playing for England and my love playing for my country will never be lost on me. Well, firstly, the, the environment Steve's made in terms of us as an England team, and that's not 1-23, to 23, that's 1-36, to 36, that's 1-45 to 45 of those boys I've been involved in. It's as tight as I've ever seen it. When it's a day off, it's a fully day off. There's no rugby, There's the, you're fully left to your own devices. Even there's something as simple as wearing your own clothes on a day off. It's little things like that that make the environment that much more enjoyable. I just want to keep getting better and Steve is the perfect coach with, with the assistant coaches and in terms of helping me do that. And whatever that means in terms of my involvement, hopefully it means I play every game. But if it doesn't, then so be it. I just want to keep turning up and keep contributing in whatever way I can. And I know it's it's easy to say that sitting here and probably a lot of people say that, but I do probably genuinely mean it from my experience of not having the opportunity just to even train with the team and to be outside of the environment. I'm just trying to make the most of it and, and appreciate some of the guys that I now consider very close friends that I wouldn't have because of playing for England. Probably the last 12 months of my career have been my most enjoyable and it's no secret that that's probably because I've played a bit more of a contributing factor to England's success or and sometimes not their success because then at least you're responsible, at least you actually have an opportunity to turn the fortunes of the team around. Coming up next on the England Rugby Podcast, O2 Inside Line.
Leaving university was a weird decision because I'd already put the best part of the year and a half. All of my university friends will attest to the fact I was a terrible student. I uh, wasn't very academically minded. Was constantly trying to, you know, get help to catch up from not being at lectures, from training, 